Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 522 with Chef Terry Rodero. So I was like, oh, and then I said, well, what, how about if I give them pre-buying gift certificate in $1,000 increments? And he looked at me and he did not put down his eyebrow. And I was like, ha, I got something, right? So he put that through his law firm. They looked into it for three days. And then he came back to me. He goes, shit, you might have something there. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Wouldn't it be great if you could play music directly from your Spotify account in your own restaurant without worrying about being pinched by the music police? Well, guess what? With Soundtrack, your brand, you can. Unlike Spotify Premium, YouTube, or Apple Music, Soundtrack, your brand is licensed for business use. And with SoundtrackYourBrand.com, you can import your favorite music from Spotify and share them directly with your guests. This deal typically goes for $26.99, but if you act now, you can get this deal for $19.99 per month, per location, for life. Get on it. Again, that's SoundtrackYourBrand.com or find the banner in the show notes. Facebook marketing, it's intimidating, it's stressful, but you don't have to do it alone. Our friend, past guest mentor, and industry expert, Nick Fosberg, is launching his automated cash flow masterclass this week. You'll get five automated Facebook marketing systems that attract new customers on a shoestring budget. You'll also get all the offers, all the promotions, and you'll see step-by-step how to set each of these up in 20 minutes or less. This will be selling for $1,500, but he's giving it to you for free for a limited time only. Go to www.restaurantfacebooksystems.com. So with excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Chef Terry Rotoro, a.k.a. the chef in the hat. Chef, how are you doing today? I am fabulous. Thank you very much for having me on Restaurant Unstoppable. Uh, I'm psyched to have you on the show. You're, you have incredible experience, and I know you're just going to drop some bombs of knowledge on us today, so Uh-oh. I can't wait to dive in. So Chef Terry Rotoro hails from France. His parents were farmers in a small agricultural community, which led to Rotoro uh, quickly becoming acquainted with fresh homegrown ingredients in cooking at a young age. After apprenticing throughout France, Rotoro landed in Chicago at the ripe age of 20. After some time in LA, he found himself in Seattle, where he became the chef owner of Rover's Restaurant in 1998. And by, sorry, in 1987. And by 1998, Rotoro won Best Chef Pacific Northwest from the James Beard Foundation. Today, Rotoro is the chef owner of Lule and Luke, located in Seattle, Washington. Obviously, we're just scraping the surface on your career. I can't wait to dive into it. Well, there's way too much to talk about. <laughs> there is a lot. It was hard to kind of pick through that and find out exactly what's a highlight in the intro, but uh, let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? It starts with fresh, local, seasonal ingredients, and the rest of it is hopefully we won't screw it up. Yes. Uh, and you know, one of the lessons I've learned just talking to restaurateurs in general is less is more, and it Correct. applies in food too. Right. It is. Um, it has been uh, one of my biggest challenge, I think, through my uh, culinary career, to not uh, to learn to stay away and uh, to let the the ingredients speak. Mm. You know, it's uh, when you're young, you want to fabricate some stuff that's like 
17 steps later, you finally finish with the product. Uh, as you get older, you understand and you appreciate the beauty of the ingredient itself mm. for what it is. Mm. A few combinations, less ingredient mixed to it, and less down to it is usually a better action. Now, there are obviously, um, you know, in my two restaurants, one of them is definitely a bistro, more like a uh, neighborhood bistro. So classic like Boeuf Bourguignon and Cassoulet and stuff like that. That you can't really cut corner and make it too, um, you know, you can't change those recipes very much. Mm -hmm. But in, uh, in the wood we live in, especially here in the Pacific Northwest in Seattle, we are the most fortunate cooks in the country, I think, to have such an abundance of Oh, it's goods. incredible. Yeah. I mean, between the, Atlantic, uh, the Pacific Ocean, right behind those range of mountain, then, of course, those mountains protect us a little bit. So we always have, we have another set of mountain on the, on the east side of the Puget Sound. So we're basically in a valley that never gets really, really cold or not too, too hot, except for a couple of days out of the year. And that protects us and gives us such a beautiful maritime weather that we have the Garden of Eden for yeah. definitely um, the garden part, the, the vegetables. <laughs> and then Eastern Washington is always 15 to 20 degrees warmer, which provides us with some of the most incredible stone fruits, um, the grape country, the wheat, yeah, the, the farm country. I mean, <laughs> we, we are blessed. I, I, I joke, I say... We could take the cutout of Washington State and push it into the Pacific Ocean, and I think we could be fine. <laughs> yeah, there is definitely <laughs> a, a great thing you guys have going on here, and a lot of people I've I've learned in my only about a week since I've been in this area, uh, this whole myth of it being dark and uh, depressing, and it's kind of just a, a secret, a, 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 a front you guys put up to keep everybody out. Well, it's something. It's when we <laughs> we invite foreigners or oh, foreigners mm -hmm. to the city. To come in January, so it looks that way, and yeah. people don't want to move here. But it's not working very well because we've had one of the fastest growing cities oh, in America. Man. It's gorgeous. I can see why. So wait, let's let's bring it back to. So the mission of this podcast is to find out who you are and what makes you you. And you have a lot of great early experience, uh, you know, staging for incredible people, working under incredible people. But you also have a ton of experience as an owner and operator. So I want to make sure we save plenty of time to talk sure. about you as an owner and operator and how you've transformed since opening your first place. Right. way back in 87 but who well let's bring it back to where you first you know got into the industry do you know when that was and when you when you fell in love with the the, the idea of committing your life to food and beverage um probably four years after i started cooking the first two years were pretty rough i mean um i was an apprentice in france and treated like shit if you can say that on your yeah station. you can say whatever you want <laughs> i mean it was I it was it was definitely <laughs> terrible for a 14 year old to 16 year old coming from a very small town, moving into a bigger city of 50,000 people. Yeah. And just being, I, you know, I was basically by myself six days a week and, and working from, you know, you get up at 7.30, and you, you be in the kitchen at 7.30 in the morning. Wow. Then you get a cut in the afternoon if you're lucky, and then you come back at 6 o'clock or 5 o'clock, and then you do the service at nighttime. Wow. But that, that, that wasn't the hardest part. The hardest part was to have this guy constantly beating you down as a, horrible chef I had from when I was apprentice. So the experience of apprenticeship was not very good for me. What came further up was everything, you know, when you have the worst thing that happened to you, everything after that can be the best thing in the world because 
it cannot get any worse, right? Yeah, you know, that's, you also bring something up too. We we learn a lot from people, whether it's the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. That is correct. And it sounds like this is one of those experiences where you learned about the wrong way to, to treat people. So correct. really get, get into, give me a quick specific as to what wasn't being done right in this circumstance. So what wasn't being done right is one, when you're an apprentice, you're a pupil to a teacher. None of this was happening. The guy was not teaching me anything. I had to learn everything myself. I had to read the books at night. I had to, it, it was it was horrid because you're reading stuff that you don't actually understand because yeah. you don't actually know how it works. Exactly. Right? You can, you, you're 14 years old and you're reading about a consommé, right? Something very classical French, right? Then you're supposed to know after two years of apprenticeship, you're gonna have a test and all that stuff. Well, you don't understand why somebody would put egg white and do a you know clarification you don't understand why this is really going on why why are we doing yeah. all this work so if you don't have a tutor to show you and to mentor you it, it never passed base you know you stay at base one you know you never go further than that yeah so this so, guy was looking at you as cheap help basically <laughs> he wasn't even looking at me oh. i think he was just treating me like if he needed something to be done in his in his house uh, like insulation or whatever. That's what I would do during what? my cut between three and five. Jeez. Come to my house, you little, you know, it's <laughs> whatever. Um, all kind of crazy stuff. But um, what I've discovered from that is exactly what you said, is I learn what not to do. And I've always told my employee, whenever you leave or you go anywhere, you can never say, oh, I never learned anything in that place. Because to me, that tells me you were not paying attention. Mm. I said, the least you're going to learn in any place is what not to do. Exactly. I love it. And those are great, great education. So, yeah, absolutely. But did you have any good experiences as an apprentice? Did any, were there any of the mentors that did take you in? And did you? The great experience I had as, a, as, a, as during my apprenticeship was the fact that the son was the chef, but the dad, who was much older, 65, 68, was about a year or two years before retirement. And, um, on Monday night, he would be the chef because the other chef would be off, his son. And that man was so sweet, so nice. He would always be like, you don't know how to do that? I'm like, no, nobody has showed me. Oh, let me show you that. Mm. And those were the glorious, beautiful days. I love working on Monday night. How did it feel to work like that, to have somebody who was so willing to teach was, you? And to yeah, and somebody who was understanding that I wasn't supposed to know, then you had to show me, mm -hmm. you know, once. Yeah. Please, show me at least once <laughs> yeah. and make me understand why we're doing things. Exactly. And then the rest is, you know, up to me if I catch it or not. But there was, you know, that opportunity showed me that um, there was hope. Mm -hmm. And when I left, um, I know I graduated. I had my CAP, which is the exam you take uh, okay. at the end of your apprenticeship. And I graduated and put a big finger up to the uh, chef and go, <laughs> see, for two years you told me I wasn't going to get it. But guess what? I, I got it. Nice. And I moved down to different places, the Mont Saint-Michel in Normandy, and Chamonix in the Alps, and Andai in the Basque Country, and there I met many different places. I met very nice people who were um, at least telling me what to do and showing me how to be, do, uh, be doing the right thing. At this point of your life, are you committed to uh, culinary as for, for the rest of your life? Are you in, are you in well, love with it yet? Or? So just so you know, I come from a very old fashioned, very poor, small town. There was no giving up, you know, where, where in my hometown when you, or when I was young, when you committed to something, there was not that beautiful thing that we have in America where if you don't like it, you can change and do something else. That never really crossed your mind, <laughs> you know, because you're, you're like, no, you don't quit. You just keep doing that. Yeah. This is what you're going to be doing yeah. for the rest of your life. So my fight to that was to find a good way to enjoy my work. 
And then, of course, I moved to, to the States and discovered some great talent. And in LA, I worked with some fabulous chefs, you know, Laurent Cagneau in LA, especially, um, where, you know, it was just a fantastic way to see the artistry that was possible so in my craft. And, and that totally took me on a chain of like, okay. oh my God, I'm going for this forever. So you said you wanted to find a way to enjoy your work. Right. Reflecting back at that time, what did that picture look like? How did you want to set yourself up so you could enjoy it? My enjoyment was coming from the creativity and the artistry that comes into my craft. You know, it's, it's, um, it's very sad if you do just cooking by itself for doing the same thing every day and not have any outcome of, of creativity, I think. You okay. know? And I think it's also the reason why so many cooks who often are called disgruntled or whatever, they shine in the kitchen because the kitchen is a place where you can actually take your craft and have some sense of creativity and accomplishment. You know, the, 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 the bad side of the kitchen is it's a very physical hard work. Mm. So in order to work that hard in life, I think the only motivation you can possibly have is to know you have enough come for creativity. Yeah. So you wanted to create a lifestyle for yourself so you could create. You didn't want to just get into uh, the, the motion of working the line and uh you knew from a very early stage that you wanted to be able to create your own things and to have that element of the work you do right. to stay happy. So y your solution was to come to the States. My solution was to come to the States. Uh, no, my solution, I came to the States only for six months to make some money okay. and go back. Okay. Um, obviously, I suck at making money, so <laughs> I stayed. <laughs> but I, what I loved so much about the state was that, that famous opportunity of like anyone can do anything. Mm. If you put your heart to it, there is opportunity for everyone. Um, so looking back, I just started seeing that and I was like, wait a minute, I can do this. And then I started really working higher and higher in my profession in, uh, in the level of, uh, uh, craft and, um, professionalism. And I realized, oh my God, this is so cool. I mean, this is like cooler and cooler all the time. So I can actually grow into this. And eventually, what do you mean? What is cool? You said, this is cool. What, what well, was what's cool? cool is, you know, when you, again, going back to when you work in the kitchen and you're getting screamed at all day long and beat up and all that stuff, it's not fun. Mm -hmm. When you work in the kitchen where people are like, oh man, we just got in some beautiful turbo, blah, blah, blah. That's excitement. Yeah. That's like, oh my God, look you at this. this yeah. Look at this opportunity here. You know, and, and so you learn all this different enjoyment and you realize that your, your, your happiness of life goes up a hundredfold when this kind of stuff happen. Mm. So you want more of that. Mm -hmm. And eventually, working with someone else was great, but then I was like, you know, I need to open my own restaurant. I want to do my own thing. So I want to make sure I'm hearing you right. So uh, you said that you want more of that, and what more of that was, was the ability to come across new experiences, to, grow your, to grow your knowledge base, to try new things, right. to, to expand upon to your To try abilities. new things was the most exciting okay, reason. Okay, why do you think that's so important? Well, because there is no boredom in trying new things. Mm. There is boredom in doing the same thing, mm -hmm. especially for kids like me who are probably ADD or yeah, whatever. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> Eventually, you're like, I, I can't be doing crepes every day of my life or doing whatever, the same thing every day. I like to have the challenge of the changes. Now, I never bought into the challenge of changes just for the sake of changes. I like changes that make sense. I like changes that are reflected to the season reflected to the good that are available right here, right now. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, when I first came to Seattle and I went to Pike Place Market and I was like, oh my God, this is the town I want to work in. <laughs> because I'm like, you know, if there is a Pike Place Market, I mean, if there's a market like this, 
the goods are so incredibly available. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, this is it. This is where I want to work. And then you start discovering, you know, I was I was not even 27 when I opened Rovers, you know, and, and I started this and then I, I, you know, every day, I was going to the market three days a week. We were open five, six days a week. I was to the market three days a week, you know, and after four or five years, I realized, you know, I don't need to go to the market anymore. I can't have them come to me. You know, the farmers, the, you know, yeah. all these guys, you start making your name and people show up. Yeah. So you get the guy who shows up with, you know, 10 pounds or 20 pounds of beautiful chanterelle and morels and mushrooms or whatever. And you get the little lady that comes with a basket of, you know, two years after I opened, no, three years after I opened Rovers uh, in 1990, I remember this woman walking at my back door, looking like a typical farmer woman with a giant um, weaver basket and about 10 different goat cheese on it. Oh, and I was wow. like, come in. Oh my <laughs> God, where have you been all my life? Oh man. And that was, that was the Quillesescut farm. You know, we makes, who makes goat cheese and fabulous cheeses and they've grown obviously since then. But you know, that kind of stuff really push you up every day to see when you see the guy coming with the, the cherries, the Bing cherries, the rainier cherries, you know, the fruits, the oh, everything, the fish guy, you know, oh look, I just got a, a, a student from the Columbia River. You want it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and then you're like, I'm gonna now I gotta sell these things, you know. Yeah. But that's my I love it. My craftsman ship is where it comes in, you know, of like, okay, how am I gonna do this? I'm gonna do some crudo, I'm yep. gonna do some whatever. So the, I don't know, it's a it's a non-stop and then you surround yourself with cooks that are in the same spirit, you know, mm. who have this endless wanted, you know, I remember been sitting at Rovers at one o'clock in the morning with my sous chef and my lead cook talking about food. And I, and I was like, okay guys, we need to go home. It's one o'clock in the morning. We need to be like early tomorrow. We need to go home. <laughs> so I'm going to put a note here, uh, same spirit, because I think that's something that we can pick up on when we come back. Uh, I want to make sure we don't miss anything during your come up, during the time that you spent in L.A. And uh, if there are any other mentors, any other key like aha moments. And then we'll bring it back to this opportunity you had to to buy Rovers. Right. Uh, and then we'll, we'll dive into finding people with the same spirit. But any big mentors that you had? Um, well, I think before when, coming to Seattle, any, any big lessons that you I think up? I think in uh, in Chicago at La Fontaine, um, you know Jean Claude Poilvet and um, in the restaurant La Fontaine, they were those guys were great mentors because they were French and they were in a time in Chicago in 1978 where those guys were doing some good business. Yeah, and they were doing very classic things like you know, duck à l'orange and uh, filet mignon for two with béarnaise and, and pomme soufflé, which is where I learned to make pomme soufflé the right way and beautiful one. Um, you know, things like that and very classic, but super well. Those guys were doing so much business. It was unbelievable. And you learn from that, you know, then I started looking at the aspect of the actual restaurant business itself, slowly but surely. And and realize, you know, those guys are three of them partners and they're making a great living. Mm -hmm. I, I should be able to wing something out, you know, even though I don't know anything about business, which is, we'll go through this as, a, yeah. as the Rover's opening. So real quick, yeah. uh, three partners, right? Yeah. Uh, and they're doing good. They're all making a good living. We open five, six days a week, yeah. night only, dinner only, and they're making bundles. Is this their only business? Is yeah. This, okay. So what do you think it was about this partnership? What made this partnership work? What did what you learn about great, partnerships? What was guys? great about that partnership is one was in the kitchen, chef. One was in the front of the house, maitre d', and the other one was in the office, accounting. Mm -hmm. And I think that was perfect because... 
the chef didn't have to worry about the accounting. The maitre didn't have to worry about the accounting in the kitchen. So they all had their different strength. And I think that is a And what happens when you don't have to worry about the things you're not good at? Uh, hopefully you find the right person to make it because that, that's an issue that happens all the time in the restaurant business, I think, and I see it all the time, is people take a partner to cover one angle of the business. And that partnership often, sadly enough, end up in fights because one feels he's doing more than the other, or the other one is not really that great at doing that, or the other one is jealous of the other one. I mean, it's it's kind of like, um, it can go very sour very quickly. Yeah. And that happens very often. Yeah. It's extremely important that, that's why I went solo after, I mean, I started with Rovers, I needed money, so I found this uh, person that had a mother that had money, and she's the one who lent us the money to open Rovers. You know, I didn't have any money. I was a line cook or sous chef before that in LA. I just, you know, I moved to Seattle with my wife, and that woman was my partner. So she moved with her husband. There was four of us moving into a new city from Los Angeles into a new city with a 32-seat restaurant. Wow. And, it, and of course, I can write the book about what you're not supposed to do than I did. <laughs> because <laughs> because everything I did was wrong. Okay, well, I, let's just, we can. I, I want to get to that that point. Um, anything, anybody in LA that we should mention? Any lessons before coming coming back to this current time that you're I at? I think right Laurent Cunyu. Okay, is uh, Laurent Cunyu Q U E N I O U X, who's still doing pop ups every weeks, every month in uh, in uh, Los Angeles, and. Um, that man is an artist. He's a very talented artist. What did you learn from him? Well, I learned the, the fact that there is no end to my craft. Mm. There is a beginning, but there is no end. What and do you I, mean by that? What I mean by that is often um, don't skip the beginning because it is actually important. Don't skip the beginning. The beginning meaning learn all the basics of cooking. Try to learn as many of those basics as possible. This will allow you to fly endlessly. Mm-hmm. But if you only have some part of the basic, you will hurt yourself along the way, where 50% of what you will create will not sing very well. Okay. You know, if you put the assets on your side, if you learn all those basics, and basics are from hygiene to, um, so from sanitary side of the kitchen to the operational uh, side of the kitchen and the creativity of the kitchen. Also, the utilization of product. Mm -hmm. You know, waste does not exist. You know, there shouldn't be any waste. There should be like very, like very tiny little mm -hmm. waste in the kitchen. Everything, you should learn how to buy, use all those byproducts day in, day out. Yeah, you also increase your margins when you do that. Well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's a basic that you learn as a, that's what you learn as a basic. You, <coughs> not, learn, yeah. you learn that if you fillet a salmon, there is tons of meat left on that bone. You take a spoon and you get that meat out. You make a muslin. You make something else. You, you use the byproduct. You take the bones and you make a stock. You take the head and you make a f another thing. You know, you roast it. You do whatever you want and mm -hmm. you take the meat out. And I mean, the, the point is you learn to use all byproducts. So this kind of compounds off the idea that you mentioned that you never stop learning. You never stop. You no, you never going. stop. Yeah. You, and, and even today, I'm 58 years old. I'm still learning. Mm. You know, I see things that my kids here are doing, my, my kids, my my uh, employee, you know, in the kitchen, whatever, they, they, they're, obviously they could be my kids. They're younger than me, much younger than me. And sometimes they, you know, I have to hold the horses down and go, wait, uh, that doesn't really fit what we're doing here. You need to 
yeah chill down you can't be making tacos and hot sauce because that's not what we do here yeah but if you want to do the pulled pork let's do it differently let's put it maybe in a in a fruity or something i don't know we can find many different ways to use it you can but there is different ways the the point is that if you have the base you never run out of ideas mm -hmm. and that's the cool thing about our job and i always tell those kids i said there is a beginning the beginning is learn the basics learn what a kitchen is learn all the basic of the product you know learn the season learn what's available learn all this as you move along make sure that you're not in 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 uh, january doing a strawberry dessert and in uh july doing a a nut dessert you know it's like no you do those you know it's reverse you do this the strawberry yep. in june or july when strawberries are in season available when they are their best mm. and yes it's only a three-week window but it's the best three weeks of your life <laughs> yes absolutely you know and and that's all the treatment that you learn as you grow through this industry. Okay, let's bring it to Seattle. I think it's okay. time to get, to talk about your career as a restaurateur, starting your own businesses. So when you first came to Seattle, you were working in Seattle. You you didn't no you, no no no. Were you, you, you went straight to opening. I, I came, were, yeah yeah. I okay. came to Seattle three times. Okay. With my wife, we came from LA visit a friend of mine who was my best man at my wedding. Okay. And his wife, who was a friend of mine in Chicago, so we had moved him and I, Cyril, we had moved together in Los Angeles. And he had moved up here with his wife because um, her parents lived in Issaquah. So they were closer to her family. So I came to visit him two or three times. And the last time I came to visit him on the Easter weekend of 1997, 1987, pardon me. Um, this, we went to this restaurant called Rovers that just got a little uh, review in the LA Times. And we kind of knew friends, common friends from the American Bar and Grill, Mangia, and we knew some of the people. So we're like, oh, let's go eat there. So we go eat there. We meet the chef, Kevin McKenzie. And Kevin is a Hollywood boy. And uh, he came to Seattle with the idea that every chef would want, which is, oh, man, that looks so cool to cook here, blah, 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 blah. And, but he was already, like, bored to death. He's like, this, you know, they don't have any palette, whatever. They don't know what. <laughs> great food is and it's true that in 87 it was pretty sparse around here it yeah. was it the was potential was here but the food wasn't the quite potential here. was totally here yeah. and that's why i moved here because i was like my god there's so much potential here yeah and but the 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 talent had not moved here yet or had not progressed out yet there was some talent in town i mean tom douglas was already here mm -hmm. and um many many other chefs but there was not that giant movement that is obviously exists that, that existed after that mm -hmm. and uh he was like, I need to move back to LA, blah, blah, blah. This town is crazy, blah, blah, blah. He was not very happy, that's okay. needless to say. But his restaurant was only like 10 months old. So you just came to his restaurant originally just to, to be a guest there to check it we, out. We ate dinner. It was delicious. And, and, uh, but he was like, oh, I need to move back. And at the time, I was talking to a partner in uh, Los Angeles to open a restaurant, possibly. We were looking at a space in Santa Monica, right up the street from Chinois. Uh, and... Uh, I went back to LA and I said to, to Diane, my partner at the time, I said, listen, I'm, uh, I'm sold out. I'm moving to Seattle. Plus, my wife and I were trying to buy a house in, in LA and we couldn't. Uh, the, the price was going up 10 grand a yeah. month. I was like, I didn't get a raise last month. You know, it's mm -hmm. like you were chasing the real estate. So we came to Seattle and uh, Diane said, okay, I'm going with you. And so she came up here, her and her husband and me and my wife. And uh, we moved all four of us in a 32-seat restaurant nice. that was generating nothing. <laughs> but you didn't have, like you but said... my goal was 
and I was convinced of this. And of course, I wasn't even 27. So yeah. I was that, you know, that great spirit of like, you know, I don't care. I'm going to do what I think is right. And they'll come eventually. Mm. Man, that is a stupid way to do things. <laughs> Not a stupid way. It's a hard way to do it things. It is a hard way to do things. But guess it's what? A, you did it. Yeah, and I know. I know. I know. But there's got to be an, a bit of an easier <laughs> way. We started. So we took this restaurant and we spent like, Ten, fifteen thousand dollars just fixing a few things that yeah. we wanted to fix, and that's it. You said you got your money from somebody, right? The, yeah, from her mother. From from whose mother? From was my it? partner's mother. Okay, got you. And you know, we did, we did. So we opened the restaurant. First of all, we didn't change the name because I thought, oh my god, I want to keep you know the name. I don't want to. I don't want to make any wave. I just want to get customers at the door, right? Yeah. So obviously, not knowing any side of business, I was like, okay, we, we just keep the name. I kept the same menu for a month, you know, doing this stuff. And I didn't want to rock the boat. I, I was thinking in my head that, well, the customers are going to keep coming and then slowly but surely I can change. What dumb of me to not know that if you, the chef leaves, obviously the customers don't yeah. come anymore. They yeah. say, you know, if you change the name and if you announce a new chef, people will show up because mm -hmm. they're curious. Yeah. And that's something I did not know in 87. Okay. And I, I was curious about that. I was wondering what, what, what the outcome was that, of that was. And that's yeah. what I would have thought you should have done. But And I was in a crummy neighborhood at the time. Okay. Madison Valley was not a destination for this town. Mm -hmm. And so all the assets were against me. And we started with zero in the cash register. So we had no funds and everything. It was very hard. I mean, I didn't take a paycheck for many months to go and whatever. Um, so we did that. And after two years, I bought my partner out and been solo ever since. Okay. Never looked back into partnership or so anything. So how did you get to the point mm -hmm. to be in the position to buy your partner out? You must have started doing some things, right? Well, we, we started having a little thing and then I made payment to her. I, I couldn't buy her out. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, it was, and it also was not a big amount of money, mm -hmm. but I made her payment. And Was that the plan from the beginning to buy your partner out? No. Was, okay. No, it just turned out that way because... You know, we fell out of love and okay. um, it ju we just saw things differently, you know. Okay. She obviously was a little bit more um, business, trying to, to do the business side of it. And she was like, you know, why don't you do pasta and everything? I was like, no, man, I don't want to do that. I want, <laughs> I want to keep doing there. my multi-course yeah. dinner and, you know, this and that. Yeah. So I stuck to my gun and, you know, it took about six years to get off the ground and becoming really something. And... Um, you know, the rest is history, as we say in the book. But if there was no Microsoft in Seattle, I would have never, I don't think I would have picked up. Yeah. So here's the thing. There's a lot of people listening to this that are in that, in the position that you were in when you first started, mm -hmm. uh, you know, not giving yourself a paycheck, doing whatever it takes to, to get started. What advice right. do you have for that person? What things did you do that right um, in that scenario that you can share with your people or the things you did wrong that you would say, don't do what I did. Well, my wife doing, doing waitress shift and hostess shift so she could get a little cash, mm -hmm. you know, of some kind of cash. And, but you know, I can tell you that, um, I'll get to your answer in a second, but I can tell you it's not very, um, it's pretty scary to do a night where you have zero customer in mm -hmm. your restaurant. You're out of the way, you're in a neighborhood, you're not downtown, you're not where everything is happening. And you get zero people walking your door. You're in the back doing nothing. You're waiting. Mm -hmm. That gets very scary. And and you know, there's there's been a few times where uh, you know sleeping was really hard to do because you know you feel responsible. You also feel like God, man, I don't want to break this down. I don't want to be a failure at this. 
I want to make it. This is my life, right? Mm -hmm. uh, my advice is don't do any of that. Make sure you do a little research on, first of all, the neighborhood where you are. Let's make sure you have an idea of what the walk-in is going to be like if you're going to do walk-ins. If you're going to do fancy, make sure you have a good opportunity to make a very good message to, your, to the crowd. Make sure your message is concise. Make sure not just, oh, I'm going to cook and they're going to come. That's fine, but you need to have a message at front. So have a good message. What, what is a good well, message? Well, you need to be able to tell the consumer or your guest or actually your customer, you need, in order to attract them, you need to be able to describe what you do. Okay. And to describe what you do in a way of an easy message for people to understand. So this is a French Northwest restaurant where we try to provide an evening, an event. This is not just dining. This is not just eating. This is more like dining. Okay. You know, and, you know, really portray exactly what you're trying to do. The problem is, you know, I was easy shifting in things when I was starting, and we started, we were so cheap. I was doing a three-course dinner for 1995. But this is 1987, but still, I couldn't yeah. make it. I was selling lobster for, at the time for like 20 bucks or something. It was, I mean, there was no, the food cost was out of whack. The, you know, the only thing that was a little bit in order was the labor because there was no labor. <laughs> it was me yeah. from like sun up to sundown and you know that was the end of that and there was one guy in the kitchen and then after that I got two, I got three. You know, then it becomes, you know, as as business picked up, I picked up the cooks but it was very very taxing and demanding on me. Um my advice to young cooks is do a little research, change the name and Try to find a name that relates to a story, you know, a good story or mm -hmm. something that means something. And then stay focused. Stay focused in the way of don't turn Japanese, Greek, Italian, French, whatever, on the dime because you're panicking because there is no business. Mm -hmm. The fact that you don't have much business at the beginning should be a normal thing, to me at least. You know, you see this euphoria of, oh, I get a review, I'm busy for a month, and then boom, things yeah. dry out. That's exactly how it works today. I mean, in the old days, in the it was old the days, opposite. <laughs> you'd get, you'd wait for a long time for your review. I yeah. waited a, like a year and a half to two years. My first review was two days after I opened in a stranger, and then after that, I waited a year and a half for the main Seattle Time reviewer to come in. So that's the longest year and a half of your life. You're like, oh my god, I need some help. I need somebody to come and review this restaurant. The problem is. I moved to a new city. I didn't know anybody. I didn't know how to get those things. You know, I've learned all these things. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, as the future came on, every fundraiser for any good cause that I was believing in, I would do. Yeah. I would show up. And they would be like, "Who? what's Rovers? You know, and then you have to explain to people. You know? Well, yeah, but you gotta, you gotta, people aren't just gonna know. You have to educate people. Correct. You have to get correct. out there. You have to put and it out into the public. But you have to get out there day in, day out. Yeah. You can't, Many, many, many restaurateurs over the year who were my size or small or just slightly bigger would always, you know, I would see them, they go, man, how do you do this? You're always like doing all this. And I'm like, I didn't know I had a choice. This is not, I'm doing this because I believe in the cause and I'm also doing it because, because I want to get my name in the community. I want to yeah. make sure that people know about me. I don't have any money to give to nobody to put my, you know, one page ad in the newspaper. I don't have that kind of but money. But we all have a certain amount of time. 
And we all have, you know, we can give our time to people, and that's an Correct. asset that Correct. we all have. And, Correct. Uh, so how did you get to that? That is, that is one thing I am curious about. How did you get to the point? Um, actually, do I want to go there yet? Yeah, I'm going to go there now. How did you get to the point where you could be out of your restaurant? I mean, you had to attract onto yourself. I mean, you only started with four people, right? Well, I started with one guy in the kitchen. Okay. And then two guys. And those were the hard years where we worked the ass off, all of us. Yeah. You know, we really worked hard. Uh, Bill Morris at uh, one time was my chef de cuisine. He's a chef in town. And then uh, Roger Babel was the uh, lead cook. He was finished. He did a two-year apprenticeship with us through the Chef Association, then stayed on for another year and then moved down. Those guys were definitely committed. Just like, and they were, you know, they loved the, the excitement of creating and all that. So we were doing a trio and we were, you know, banging it every day. And it was, it was definitely not easy, but mm -hmm. we did it. And... What kept us alive was the excitement, you know, the excitement of the being spirit, young as you said and the earlier. spirit yeah. of like, oh my God, we're creating all this good food, you know. So that was that was the part. And then we had a fourth employee and then, you know, um, we grew. And then once we had that, I was allowed to, uh, it allowed me to be able to leave and go do a fundraiser for SOS, Share Our Strength, or for Food Lifeline, you know, for things that were, you know, dear to me and that were reflecting what we were trying to do, the Pike Place Market, you know. And that's how you get your name in the community. You put the, you know, you put your name on the table, and people come by and they go, you know, people. It's an event, right? Yeah. So people come by and they go, "Who are you?" you yeah, know, you exactly. Go, hey, we're from Rovers, and I tell you one thing: I'm not shy about bragging, not bragging, but mentioning where I'm coming from, because I wanted to make sure people knew, and I wanted, I was there for that reason. You know, I was there. Your I character. <laughs> yeah, and I wanted to make sure people didn't yeah. forget. But people go to restaurants because the food's good, obviously. But also, in, in my humble opinion, mostly because of the people that are at that restaurant. Of course. The, the chef, the, right. the servers, the bartender. And if you are somebody that is interesting and you're right. out in the public and you're meeting people, you're shaking hands, and you're being of interest, um, or you're going to attract onto yourself people. You're going to pull, pull those people in. Um, one thing I want to go back on, because I had made the note, is the same spirit. And why is that so important to have the same spirit, to, to hire people, to bring people on that have the same spirit and the same values? How does that serve you? Well, imagine a carriage with eight horses, and four of them want to go one way, and the other four want to go the other way. Mm -hmm. Where but do you end up going? Nowhere. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that's what I mean by the spirit. You need to able to drive your team in terms of making them really understand what you're trying to do mm. and show them the excitement you get. I mean, every day you show them the excitement you get from doing what you're doing. And that makes them excited. And that's yeah. kind of like a, an epidemic. You know, it kind of grows on other people. And, mm. and if they're into it, they're going to stick to it and they're going to have that spirit too. You know, it, to me, I think it's always exciting to see somebody who's really into what they're doing and see the excitement they produce from that. I mean, it doesn't matter what field it's in. It's always exciting. Yeah. You know, you see that and you go, man, that is yeah. so cool. Such a spirit. I just want to stomp on the brake with two feet real quick because I want to put emphasis on this. In your restaurant right now, if you're listening to this, does everybody know the mission? Does everybody know what the vision is, where you're going, what 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 it is you want to do? Is it crystal clear? Are you communicating that? And are you getting people on your team that have the same values, the same spirit to pull in that direction? You, I think that, um, you know, especially at Lule, it's a bigger restaurant and it's the, the message evolves you know it's like you start with like for example at luke we opened luke eight years ago it started with it's a, a in memory of my dad that's that was my dad named luke okay. who passed away 12 years ago and i wanted to remember him and and when we were looking for a name i like simple names in restaurants i like names that don't need two years of explanation 
and I also name that American can say. Unlike your last name. And like, <laughs> like my first and last name. So, exactly. So, therefore, the chef in the hat. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, we built Luke, and the, the message was very simple. We're trying to be the beacon of Madison Valley, the reflection of the diners in the 50s, the great diners, of you're in the neighborhood, the lights are on, you're not thinking. You're walking in because you want to drink or you want to eat something. And the warmth of that place is what brings you back every day. Mm. So we provide the service, we provide the recognition of the people who come in, and we provide the warmth that's mm -hmm. attached to that. There's a little simplicity in it, um, a lower simplicity that allows people to feel very calm and very um, attached to the place. Mm -hmm. and that's what we did. And that evolved slowly but surely into, because many other people come, not necessarily from the neighborhood, eventually once you get known, mm -hmm. you know, so you gradually move the message to we're just trying to be the warm neighborhood restaurant yes you know and a bistro obviously yeah so in uh let's see here eventually you get in 1998 you get the james beard best chef in the mm -hmm. northwest i'm sure this brought a lot of more additional business Correct. right I'm, yeah. you were already busy i'm sure and we get top rating in the zagat guy yeah, well, there's and all that so that's really accolades right uh, um too much to mention in the intro <laughs> right that's for sure so how did you your business start to transform how did you start to transform as you started becoming acclaimed so the transformation was uh, never saying no to any opportunity with the media number one people like you thank you, you. <laughs> no I mean it's you know I've never and 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 Tom Douglas will attest to that probably if he can um, not probably he will attest to that that him him and I I feel have been very very strong about don't miss opportunity that come to you that are free mm -hmm. where you have a chance to expose your business to a media. I mean, to me, it's, it's a window that's open and you can shout to a population of people and you can say, here I am. This is what we do. This is what our restaurant does. This is who I am. And that brings more people to your table. And it's opportunity that no matter what, you, can't, you should not ever miss. Mm -hmm. I've done more TV than I've... I mean, I've never thought about doing TV or doing anything like this or radio or whatever. I have a radio show for 15 years with Tom. Yeah, you know we we and why do I do it still? Because I believe that this is opportunity that you have to expose your business to people. Mm. And I don't know about you, but I can't afford to buy that kind of publicity. It's you know you, we have tons and tons of listeners all over the country. We have podcasts from Virginia to Washington. You know, it's like you can't you can't knock that down. No, you know it's free advertising the way I look at it. All it takes is my time. So. This is when we come into the conversation of once we start getting enough employee in the kitchen, I was able to liberate myself. And every, liber every time I was free, this is what I would do. I would take opportunity to either do fundraiser, expose myself to the community, or radio, or TV, or whatever. I would always say yes. But you yes. had to get your business to a certain point so where you could take off and go once, do a, a shooting on a show. Once or you something. get known by people coming in and giving you accolades or whatever, and you get the James Beard and blah, blah, blah. Once you get to that point, you have enough revenue that comes in the house where you can stabilize and you can actually have the people working so now your business is a little bit more frequently uh it's stabilized you yeah. know as opposed to one day you do two covers and the next day you do 10 and the next day you do 20 and the next day you do zero mm. uh, that kind of stuff is unlivable you know it's very hard to run a business that way you mm -hmm. can't run a business that way so once it's stabilized then you start looking at things that work and things that don't work and you improve on the things that work 
Okay. So, um, some there's still a whole bunch of your career we haven't even gotten to yet with the opening of uh, Luca in 2010, was it? Luke, yeah. L- Luke. Oh, sorry, Luke in 2010. Um, you closed Rovers in 2013. I'd like to talk a little bit about what happened that you thought So that- I had a 25-year lease. Okay. I had a 10, 10 plus 5. Okay. And then I got a year extension. Uh, so I sat down with the landlord at 20, just before 25. And, you know, I tried to explain to him, okay, so... I don't mind signing for another 10 years, but we need to redo this restaurant. We need to put it up to date for the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's a lesson we can dive into real quick. Uh, you need to stay fresh. Oh, yeah. So that's it's a big important. lesson. Yeah, you can't just be the same for 25 years. You knew that you had to put I, some money back into the business. Oh, absolutely. You have to. You can't. Yeah. And also, people lose interest. I mean, you know, there is so many distractions that keeps coming over 25 years. 25 years ago, you were the only player in town or yeah. whatever. There was five of you. You know, today, there is a hundred. Yeah, countless. So you can't, you know, the numbers are too big. The distraction is too big for you not to stay reverent. What do you say? Reverent? Uh, relevant. Rele- sorry. No, that's relevant. Okay. Not reverent. Well, reverent too. <laughs> <laughs> no, relevant. So you have to stay fresh. You know, you have to, uh, once every so often, every maybe 10 years, you have to do a little refreshing, you have to do changes, you know, upgrading, uh, even changes that are not real changes, you make changes, yeah. you know, and you announce them, and mm-hmm. you and you push that towards your customer about, you know, we're changing this, we're doing this, we're upgrading this, you know. And so you knew that you had to make these changes, you were trying to work that into the contract, or to the, you were trying to work that into the negotiation. Right, and, and what I told my landlord at the time was, I said, you know, the first time I was... I made, I made a few changes over 25 years. I said, this time I want you to partake. I want you to participate. And he was just not into it. So I said, well, you know, give me another year extension so we can work some details, see if we can work all this. And, and you know, this is when I start looking for a different place. I'm like, uh, it took me a, about a week. And one day I woke up and told my wife, we're done. And she looked at me and went, whoa, are you sure? And I said, no, I think we're done, honey. I think I can't. There is no way I can see how we would, if we keep going, and I can't even understand why we'd invest all this money in this. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I started looking. Uh, I called a, a broker, a real estate broker for restaurants, and uh, she gave me a list of about 45 places that were available to give you an idea. This is going <laughs> in 2014, 2013? That 2013, We well, opened yeah. uh, Lule in 2014, right? Uh, 13 or 14? I don't I think remember. It's 14. 14, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, that was in 2013. And uh, I looked at the list, and the first one I saw was this space here of Lule. Yeah. Who was uh, available. Beautiful space, by the way. So I came to, I said, give me, a, you know, let's have a meeting with these people. And we did a meeting, and they were ecstatic to even think that I could be here because. You know, the Sheraton is an hotel also that has been here for yeah. a long time in Seattle. And the reputation, you know, they didn't have a main restaurant anymore, like an anchor restaurant. They used to have a, a fancy restaurant that wasn't there anymore for quite some years. And uh, they were just excited to have me come back and help, you know, re, re-push the, the, the brand up. So I uh, we had a fabulous talk and everything was, you know, was hunky-dory and... I did a beautiful contract with them, and here you are. And why did you rebrand? Why not call this Rover? 
Okay, so that uh, that was another thing. So that's that was the tournament. The biggest tournament in my head was, do I open a new restaurant and call it Rovers and keep the same Rovers? But all I could hear in my head was this song. Oh, it's not the same as it used to your Rovers. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> I, I could not take that in my head. I'm like, I can't take that. Because it's obviously not going to be the same thing. You're not in a little house. Yeah. You're going to be somewhere in the downtown, in a building, because I wanted to move downtown. And I was like, no, it's, this is never going to happen. You know, and, and so I was like, okay, we got to change the name. You know, and we went through a list of names. Uh, my wife and I stopped putting name down and, and then Lule keep popping up, you know, and, and I was like, this is cool, man. It's like my hometown. And it's a name they can associate. It's also an L, same name, branding, yeah. kind of idea. The L with a hat on it, you know. And so it worked. And Lule is my hometown. Saint-Hilaire de Lule is the name of my hometown. So we dropped the Saints because I was here already. And just kept Lule. I like it. Um, and uh, side note, for those of you who like to do research, um, maybe... After everything was started and everything was already named and everything was close to opening, that summer before we opened, I went to France and I googled Lule, thinking, you know, who knows? Sure enough, there is a town actually called Lule, a hundred kilometers south of my hometown in the next state, the Charente, and it's named Lule. And I'm like, how come I never even heard of this? <laughs> it's not even, it's like 60 miles from my own town. I'm like, how did I not know about this? <laughs> so my wife and I went to that town, Lule, and visited the town and went to the, the uh, Syndicat Initiative, which is a place where you go for information and uh, ask all the questions. So where is the name coming from? They had no idea. They go, we don't know. We'll try, we research it. We can find the reason why it's called Lule. And I was like, oh, my own town, it's called Saint-Hilaire de Lule, and I was always told it's because there is a little creek that starts from the little downtown of my hometown and goes into a bigger river, and that creek is called Le Lule. And I thought that's why Saint-Hilaire de Lule was called Saint-Hilaire de Lule. Okay. But who knows? Now, now I'm so confused. <laughs> so bottom line is uh, sometimes people Google Lule, and they see this town, and they go, oh, yeah, we went to your town in the Charente. And I'm like, oh, mm, that's not the one. <laughs> that's funny. So uh, what did you do differently? So you, you had all this experience in the industry now. You're opening uh, your third restaurant, or mm -hmm. you're, you're owning your third restaurant. Mm -hmm. uh, with all this experience, how did you do Lule different with, with the, the, the knowledge you had? So the, there was many... Um, Big question in my head and, and uh, big challenges because I was moving from neighborhood to downtown. Those are two different ball games in terms of the passage, the walk-ins, the, the amount of people. You know, the, the, the thing about Lule, I'll give you an example. The first day that we opened Lule was the Friday after Thanksgiving in 2014 or 13. Uh, no, 13, I think. And we opened that. And we opened the door. Nobody knew anything. We didn't say anything. We didn't say restaurant. We didn't say anything. We opened. We unlocked the door. For lunch, we did 76 people. And I was like, OMG. We did. I mean, these people had no idea we were open. Just walking. And I was like, okay, so here we go. Now, this is a completely different beast to deal with. <laughs> yeah. And it was, it was a beast. I mean, at the beginning, we opened Lula. There was plenty of things, and I discovered and I did not necessarily know. Okay, like what? And once again, you learn well, the, of the flux of people. Yeah. The, the volume that you do and then you have to start differently thinking about your food mm -hmm. because if it takes 25 minutes to put a dish out 
when you do uh, 200 people, you can't, it doesn't work. Yeah. So there was plenty of challenges that came and I've always been of the options or the thinking that I, I don't mind adapting myself to the surrounding and to what I need to do. Just like when you do a catering, just like we do a dinner in someone's house, you have to adapt to the situation and the location. So we had to do a lot of that, a lot of work with that. And that was definitely challenging. The first six months were like deer in the headlight. Even though I have all this experience supposedly, it was still deer in the headlight in terms of many surprising angles, you know. And I always believe that you don't know what you don't know until you get there. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> and then you discover... I mean, some things I knew, but some things I had no idea that it was how bad it was going to be in yeah. terms of, you know, when the volume hits, you have to be able to produce. Absolutely. I mean, we, you know, at the beginning, it felt like a very rookie restaurant, like somebody who never had a restaurant. You know, 50-minute wait, blah, 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 things like that. And I was like, oh, my God, why am I such an idiot? Why is it not, you know, and you just adjust accordingly. You know, you talk about it with your team and you work and... Where are the kinks, you know, and you try to work the kinks out. So were you not expecting that much volume when you first got started? Were you, were you expecting it to well, kind of I was, scale in? No, I was expecting some volume, but I, was, I did not know exactly how to expect it and how, how it's going to work. And it was bigger than what I was expecting. Yeah, you got Best New Restaurant 2014, yeah. right? So you're doing something right. You're painting kind of an awful, like a picture of like it was a mess. Well, because I don't, you know, the restaurant <laughs> business, yeah. the beautiful picture of the restaurant business is already painted. That's why so many people sign up for it. Yeah. I like to bring people back to reality and tell them what happened actually in the restaurant, yeah. in the back. You know, what happened in the, in, in behind the curtain. You see the play, you don't know how much monkeying the people who have to do that play have to do in the back that's true and that's yeah. that's the part that i think is uh definitely needs to be told to make sure that people don't make the mistakes i made mm -hmm. or to make sure that people don't just think of they see a full restaurant they go oh the guy must be a millionaire they have no idea <laughs> the expenses that yeah. come with running a restaurant you Absolutely. know and, and uh, it's it's the it's the devil in in, in these guys you yeah. know it's like one thing we haven't touched on, and I was hoping we would, we kind of missed, we, we skipped over it, uh, the second restaurant, Luke, um, how you uh, raised the money for so, that was very unique. Yeah, this is, this is a, a lesson for, if you have a little bit of a name on the street, or even if you don't, because many people have tried it after uh, I did this, um, I had about eight or nine other restaurants who did the same similar plan to that. So what I came out in uh, 2009 or 2010, America was closing banks. Uh, the economy was down the tube. There was definitely some scary moments. Yeah. Turns out to be then the corner space of 28 and Madison came up for lease. And I was like, oh my God. I mean, I walked by that place every day for 25 years. And I was like, I got to get this space. This is a perfect space to open what I thought was the perfect bistro. You know, you do a bistro for, for a neighborhood. And I was like, I got to take this space. One well, start looking into it. And then, you know, like any restaurants, I'm like, yeah, that's great, but I don't have any money to yeah. put. You know, I, I was looking at about $600,000 I needed. So I was like, how am I going to find this? So obviously no bank would give you money. They don't give you money for restaurant in good days. So when the recession hit, they're definitely not giving you any money either. So I was like, okay, that's out of the picture. Then I looked into angel investors and I talked to a, a, a guy who was doing angel investing and 
I was like, these guys are not angels. These guys are devils. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they say like, they're taking your blood, your life, your kid. I'm like, what else do you want from me? Yeah. I was like, okay, that's not going to work. So I sat down with a friend of mine one day and um, used to be my lawyer. And I was like, so what about if I just tell people, uh, you know, you give me $1,000 today and I'll give you 1300 back. He goes, well, that's definitely not a bad idea, but it's against SEC rule. You can't do that. Otherwise, you could build a pyramid and get the hell yeah. out of Dodge. And I was like, oh, yeah, that makes kind of sense. <laughs> I was like, I didn't think about that. I wasn't thinking getting out. I was thinking. So I was like, oh. And then I said, well, wh how about if I give them pre-buying gift certificate in $1,000 increments? And he looked at me. And he did not put down his eyebrow. And I was like, ha, I got something, right? So he put that through his law firm. They looked into it for three days. And then he came back to me. He goes, shit, you might have something there. Yeah. So you had you would, uh, offered three gift certificates valued at 435 which could be used over the course of three years for $1,000. Yeah, no, so it was. $1,000 gift certificate okay. broken down and given to you in three increments over three years. Okay. And um, that was the most beautiful thing. That's when I knew I was in America. I made a Word document, <laughs> sent it to my mailing list of like seven, 8,000 people. And then the machine came back. The fax machine was working with people signing up. And awesome. I was like, oh, my God. So the first batch we did from November 1st to Thanksgiving. And then I had about $270,000 came in. And I was like, oh, my God, this is just where I don't want to be. It's not enough. And it's yet crazy, right? Yeah. And you're like, oh, my God. And I had to sign that lease. So... I signed the lease in December, hoping for the best, thinking I'm going to do it again in January and hopefully it's going to work. Did it again in January after the holidays, restarted. And by, by Valentine's Day, we had $450,000. $450,000. And we raised the rest of the money through two single people that were friends. And there we go. I had the money to open the restaurant. Wow. So just to make sure, I, I, I said it wrong the first time. So you'd sell gift certificates for a for thousand dollars, a thousand dollar increments, and that would give people three hundred or sorry, four hundred and thirty-five dollars. So the idea is, you get you buy a thousand, you buy a gift certificate for a thousand. I give it back to you in goods for thirteen hundred. Got you. And so you get you get good, you get you get a good advantage to buy the gift certificate. Yeah. And these people don't forget they already knew who I was and I had a name, right? Yeah. So that was apparently not that hard to do. Yeah. Well, that's I was shocked. I was like so shocked. It's uh, it's amazing. So you were able to sell 450 essentially Correct. gift certificates. Wow. Uh, yeah, you do you do need a name, I guess, is the 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 catch there. Well, you would be surprised how little is a thousand bucks because you have to look at it as who doesn't eat in one of their favorite restaurants to go to. Yeah. So the way I did my research, I came up with a thousand dollars. I'll tell you how I did. I took six single people. Um, no, I took. I'm sorry. I took a couple. And uh, a couple and five single people, different age between 28 to 50. And I asked them the same question. How much money do you spend in your favorite restaurant every year? I was stunned. Do you know what the average was on those six people? $1,900. Wow. So I was geez. like, Jesus. Um, granted, all these people, were, none of them were students. They were all people who go out. They were people who have a fluent income. But I was shocked. 
that's a lot of money. So I was like, okay, so if I do $1,000 increment, it should be a no-brainer, right? Yeah. For these people. So I, that's how I came up with the $1,000 increment. Otherwise, I was going to be, oh, should I do 2500 Should I do it? Yeah. I did 1000 And it was like many people bought five, many people bought 10. You know, the rest bought one. And some people actually who could barely afford the one took it between two people. Wow. So two people split 500 bucks. And how long did it take you to do that from the, the time you had the idea to the time that you got the 450000 uh, Well, I didn't. I, the first 270000 came in um, in the first three weeks of November. Okay. And then Thanksgiving came around, the holiday came Holidays. around. I was like, I can't send a newsletter like that in the holiday season because nobody's going to respond. Why not? It's a gift, Well, though. they had the chance to do the gift before yeah. Thanksgiving. <clears throat> so I didn't think that was a good opportunity. So I waited till after the holiday. And started again about January 10, and by February 14, by Valentine's Day, we had 450 wow, grand. And that that's was amazing. Like, Shift Terry, I've loved this conversation. I can't believe we're almost at an hour of recording. We no still, way. Yeah, it goes by so fast. Oh, wow. I've not even started yet. <laughs> right? Uh, we're going to leave room for the speed round, but I, I do want to ask, is there anything that we didn't discuss? Anything that you were hoping we would touch on before we, we wrap up the free-flowing portion of this conversation? Um. If you're going to get into the restaurant business, make sure you ask older people like me. It's worth taking the time to do an interview with these people because they will teach you certain things you're not supposed to do. Say that one more time. I want to make sure I hear you right. So if you want to open a restaurant, you should call and try to get an interview with people like Tom Douglas, like mm -hmm. people like me, people like people who've been doing this for quite some time, people who've had a, a, an history in being semi-successful in this business and ask them the don't of yes. the restaurant business not the do because the do you're gonna have to build that do you know you're gonna it's gonna grow on you and you're gonna metamorphose with that but i think the don't is very important yeah so important and you know there's so much information out there there's so many people that have figured it out that are willing to talk that are willing to mentor they're willing to yeah, share absolutely. knowledge that's what this whole podcast is based on is right. finding those people in compounding and putting all these stories all this knowledge into one spot but and good I, for you for putting a show like this together thank you thank <laughs> you it's a blast i'm learning so much one last question how has terry changed chef cherry who the chef in the hat how have you changed since 19 87, opening your first restaurant to I where have, you are today. I have augmented my uh, community uh, strength of donation and participation. Um, I am very well aware of the social issues we have in Seattle, the homelessness, uh, the hunger that exists in America, especially in the, anywhere, but in the Puget Sound, I'm a big, big, um, what do you call that? Advocate. Advocate for... Um, hunger relief. I can't fathom as a chef why would people go hungry in this country called America. That's that goes over my head. I can't figure this out, especially with the waste knowledge that I know, mm -hmm. uh, the amount of waste that we have, and everything that's left on the fields and everything. It's unfathomable to mm -hmm. me. But um, we're all gonna do this together, and that's the only way this is gonna be yes. solved. Forget the government help. We have to do it together as a community, as a country, as a state, as a city. We have to work together. How do we work together? By sharing knowledge? Or what do we, we do? We bring the subject up to front and we put people, business and community leaders in talks together, not separated. We have to be, as a community, um, the opposite of divisive. <laughs> uh, divisive, I mean. You know, we can't be divisive. We can't expect the government to find the solution for everything. 
or the city council or the this or that, those people don't necessarily know anything about business. They know about social issues, but yeah. they don't necessarily know, you know, business and community leaders have to get together and figure out those solutions. Yes. And I think um, the future is here and I think it's working slowly but surely is where from the West Coast to the East Coast. Beautiful. I love it. Thank you um, for sharing that. Uh, my and pleasure. We can go to the break now. We got to keep gas in my gas tank. So I got to thank those sponsors. We'll be right back. <laughs> Finally, a simple, affordable, and legal way to share the music that best represents your brand. It's called Soundtrack Your Brand. Get access to soundtracks tailored for any business. Side note, studies have shown that playing the right music can impact your sales. Do you have questions about what that right music is? Soundtrack or brand can help you there too. Here's a fun fact. I'm sure a lot of you out there listening to this already have a Spotify account. Well, you can take playlists from your account and import them directly into soundtrackerbrand.com. And my guests are always saying on the show that their restaurants are an extension of their own personal brand. Well, so isn't your music. And now you can marry these things together legally. Unlike Spotify, YouTube, or Apple Music, Soundtrack Your Brand is licensed for business use. Skip the hassle of ASCAP and BMI because with Soundtrack Your Brand, it's already included. You can even schedule music for the whole week and adapt the music for each day part. Typically, this deal goes for $26.99 per month, but if you act now before the end of August, you can get this deal for $19.99 per location per month for life. Again, that's SoundtrackYourBrand.com or find the banner in the show notes. Facebook marketing, it's scary and intimidating, but it's also by far the most profitable paid media platform available to attract new and retain paying customers. It's only scary and intimidating because it's foreign to you, and that's scary. What you don't know, you don't understand, that's scary. Our good friend, past guest mentor, and industry expert, Nick Fosberg, can help you figure it out and make it less scary. He's giving Restaurant Unstoppable listeners his automated cash flow masterclass, which is valued at $1,500 away for free. When Nick told me this, I thought he was up to something that seemed like way too good of a deal, but he went on and he explained to me that this is a new product. He's got to test it out. So you're the test driver. And because you're restaurant unstoppable listeners, you're getting this sucker for free. So go to restaurantfacebooksystems.com. For more details, the masterclass starts this upcoming week. Guys, don't delay. RestaurantFacebookSystems.com or find the banner in the show notes. And we're back. The first question I have for Man, you. I can't believe all those sponsors you have. Right? Good for you. <laughs> Thank you. The first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Oh my God, say that again? That was a very complicated question. You- <laughs> your your quote-unquote it factor, a habit, a trait, or a characteristic that you believe most contributes to your success. Never, never give up. Never give up. What is your biggest weakness? I'm all over the place. What is one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process? I want somebody to show me that they have some shine in their eyes, some glee that I can go, oh my God. That person is in it. Yes. The I spirit is, I, I work on spirit a lot. I said that in the interview. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe in karma. That's the only religion I believe in. You do to others what you want them to do to mm-hmm. you. Uh, and on that same note, I believe that people who have an eye that's glittering and 
showing that excitement need to get that break. Yes. Much more than the guy who has 20 great name on his resume. I want to see the shine. I want to see the guy with his eyebrows raised when you talk to him about food. I love it. What is your biggest challenge today? Employment. How are you Finding dealing with employees. that? Finding employees. Oh, ho, ho. Well, we're dealing just like everybody else. We try to give good salary. We try to give good um, you know, insurance and all that stuff, providing as much as possible for the employee. And we most importantly try to nurture the people we have to make sure they don't leave. I really try to be kind to my people and you know, make sure they stay with us mm-hmm. because at least those people will go to bat for you because they already know the, they're here for a reason and they, they love where they're working. You got to nurture that. You ha- you've, you've got shiny star in your, in your pool. You got to make sure they stay mm-hmm. the shiny star for you. And just so you guys know, uh, and I think you're a perfect example of this, it's a real issue out there today, oh. the shortage of people. And for the last two years... It, Every restaurateur, the, the best of the best is struggling to find people. Yeah. So do know you're not alone. Uh, no, and do, know, <laughs> and do know that it is a very, very sad picture out there. Yeah. And to me, the most, the saddest picture I think we've encountered over the last couple of years is the, the you put an ad up for a cook, let's say, and, uh, you know, five people respond. Three people will make an interview. One will show up. The other two will be no call. No show. Mm. Now, if this podcast goes to the world, I wanted the world to hear this. Where in hell anyone has taught you that it was okay to be a no-call, no-show, I don't care what it is for. You've had the brain and the time to ask me for an interview, and now you have the balls not to show up and <laughs> not call me? I don't know, man. That is the most disrespectful thing you can do to somebody. Mm. Call me. Tell me you're not going to come. I understand. Things get in the way. You change your mind. But please, have the decency to call us and tell us. Yeah. Uh, It's a real real challenge out there right now. It's tough. And uh, the crazy thing is people are still building restaurants. People are still building buildings that they're anticipating restaurants to go in. And I don't know what what a year from now is going to look like. We're going to be tapped out. Well, I think um, like any uh, old person can tell you, everything goes up and everything goes down. Yep. So just so you don't fool yourself out there, I don't care what <laughs> old you are, there is a recession that will come. Yep. And it always comes when you don't expect it usually or when you don't, don't pay attention. don't expect and, it anymore. It's yeah, exactly. So it will come and that uh, will bring some serious hurt and changes to the, yeah. to the, to the form of For rest. sure. Uh, share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. This is a core value, a, a way to be, a spirit. Well, um, I believe in being on time, and I believe to be ready to work when it's time to work. Beautiful. Uh, what is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? So this is something that's common within your four walls, but not common within the industry. I love to go to the table myself. I'm not afraid to be, as being the chef, to have somebody who, especially when something goes wrong, to go to the table and face the customer. I have no issue with that. I love to be able to really explain to the customer how we are humans and how, you know, even though we'd like not to admit it very easily, we do make mistakes. Mm -hmm. Things do happen behind our control or sometimes within our control. But ultimately, the buck stops right here. Mm. I'm the one who's going to make the decision that your meal is free and make the apologies to the, it cannot go anywhere else. It's where it stops. Beautiful. What is one book that's a, that will make us a better person or a restaurant operator? 
Oh, a better restaurant or Pareto? Or person. We're just a book that's a must read in general. Oh, there's so many. I know. That's not lot. cool. That's like, it's, <laughs> you kind, give me two it's or three. kind of like the same thing as when people say, what's your favorite thing on the menu? And I'm like, nothing. I mean, it's all my favorite. That's why it's there. <laughs> yeah. And also it depends on the day, what I feel like, you know, today I feel like fish, today I feel like meat. Uh, the books, books, I'm going to go with, um, well, you know, Anthony Bourdain, uh, the kitchen book that he wrote. Kitchen Confidential. Yeah. Confidential. It is one of the few things in my life that I stopped reading. This is about when it came out, like 10 years ago, or maybe more. Um, I stopped reading the book, and one third into the book, which is the first third of the book, is all based on the, the shitty side of the kitchen, you know, whatever can, can be and bad and being the bad guy and everything. And I had to put the book down and go, this is complete BS. You know, I'm not into this because this is degrading and this is also... You know, I've lived this life and I've yeah. seen this life and I'm like, I hate this thing. It's like, <laughs> it's the, what makes my, my craft not look so cool. Yeah. And also it's degrading to, you know, just to know that, that um, you know, people do that. Mm -hmm. But then I went to Hawaii and I brought the book with me and I finished to read the book and I thought it was one of the most beautiful books written. So what, when did it sw switch for you? What part, part well, of it? Well, I let it peace down. You know, just like anything, I always tell my chef, when you want to scream at someone, take a deep breath, walk away, and come back. Mm -hmm. By the time you come back, that anger, that minute anger, that second anger, is going to go away, and then you'll have a better chance to talk. Mm. You know, and, and it was kind of the same thing with, with that experience I had with Bourdain's book. I at first, I was mad because I was like, man, he's talking about all this stuff I hate yeah. so much. And I didn't think it was funny, you know. The, and then I, I went back. Because people, so many people say, oh, it's a good book and everything. And finally say, okay, just calm down. Just keep reading. I mean, if the whole, a lot of people start telling you it's a good book, you go, okay, so I'm not that stupid. I mean, I mean yeah. there's got to be something I, I didn't get yet. So I kept reading it and I finished reading it in like less than a week. In, no, like two, three days in Hawaii. And I was like, holy cow, this is a well-written yeah. book. And that one is on Audible. So if you want to get that book for free, if you have not gotten a chance to read it, or uh, if you are not an Audible member, head over to audibletrial.com slash unstoppable. Get that book for free and support the podcast. Thank you. And How do we support your podcast? Well, when people Besides go to Audible, to they, they click on that link. Uh -huh. And if they, if they get a membership to Audible, then I get paid $15. It's pretty sweet. Good for you. So everyone, I hope, say that again. <laughs> I want to hear it again. Go over to audibletrial.com slash unstoppable. If you, get, if you get that book, you will be giving $15 to Restaurant Unstoppable, and your first book will be free. And I want you to stay successful and grow because <laughs> yeah. what you do is cool. Thank you very much. Uh, share one online resource or tool that you leverage. It could be a magazine. Um, uh, well, I, the New York Times. Okay. New it's York a, a Bible. <laughs> okay. Uh, what is one technology you've adopted in your restaurant that has had a positive influence on operations, systems, communication, profitability, anything of that nature? Uh, uh, Dinoware. Okay. Uh, we changed that POS system about two years ago, two and a half years ago. It's been, it's a very friendly user uh, for people like me, um, a piece of equipment that has been definitely. Um, helpful. That mixed with QuickBook, obviously, okay, is a great tool. Awesome. Uh, and this is the last question. It's a doozy. Are you ready for it? 
Go ahead. <laughs> if you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure. With the exception of three pieces of wisdom you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy, what would those three pieces of wisdom be? Three things you know to be true. Say hi to someone who's in the street. Just tell them, you know, just say hi to them. Give them a little dignity. They love dignity. That's lost. That's one. Two, don't let anybody go hungry. This is not excusable. And three, the kids are our future. Back up any education form that you can. Make education our priority as a society so everyone becomes more intelligent and make better decisions. Well, thank you for backing up this educational form. Uh <laughs> I believe in that. I believe strongly that education will be the uh, it, it's the only safety we have it because is. more and more people grow on this planet yep. we have more and more people the the planet is suffering you know we yep. we need to find solution to our future you know and, yeah. and it's such a shallow mind to not care about yeah. i won't be here i don't care it's like that kind of talk no. is like you know what you're a selfish bastard there's the, yeah there's this frame of mind uh that we're all in debt we're we're born into this world in debt because everything mm -hmm. that we have in this world has come to us from those who have figured it out before us exactly their blood sweat and tears and hard work and mm -hmm. to compound off the knowledge from those that came before them right and they compounded on us and they, they're giving it to us and we're in debt to these people and the only way we can pay that debt back is by taking what they've but they figured out compounding onto it, mm -hmm. taking it to the next level and yeah. paying it forward to the next generation. Exactly. You said it bravely. I love it. <laughs> and one more thing that's not in your, uh, that's a fourth one. Be grateful for what you have yes. and who you are. Mm. That's a thing that is a little bit missing in the world. I think you need to be grateful. I wake up in the morning, I smile. I'm awake. I'm breathing. I'm standing. Go. Absolutely. And I get to work. The first thing I do, I go, how are you doing? And they go, I'm okay. I go, wait a minute. You're 25 years old. You can't just be okay. You have to be fabulous. Mm. You're flying high. This is life. Yeah. Grab it and enjoy it. Chef Terry Rotoro, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank <laughs> you so much for taking the time to share your story, your knowledge, your mentorship. I wrap up every conversation by having you call somebody out. So who's one independent restaurant operator, somebody you admire and think would be a great guest on the show? Oh, Tom Douglas, for sure. Yes, and I already have him lined up, so I cannot wait to get him on the show. I think he's going to be amazing. And let the folks at home know if we want to follow your work, your restaurants, uh, any social handles you want to drop on us or websites you want to drop the on chef us. Thechefinthehat.com, that's the uh, website. And then uh, we have also forgot to mention that I'm releasing a line of uh, fragrances. Yes, that's right. So chefinthehatfragrances.com, go check it out. Uh, and I... Do you have any in the restaurant? Because oh, I want to yeah. be one of your first customers. I meant to ask before I left the last time I saw you, and I want to make sure I get one of those. I'll spray you for free. Oh, all right. Sounds <laughs> we have, good. We have an older toilet, a hand soap, and a diffuser. So. All right. Sounds good. And I'll have a link. Is there a website to those? Uh, those Chefinthehatfragrances.com. Okay. I'll link to that in the show notes. Just head over to restaurantunstoppable.com. The spelling's a little tricky slash Terry, T-H-I-E-R-R-Y-R-A-U-T-U-R-E-A-U. Uh, and you'll find all the links over there. Again, Chef, thank you so much. My great pleasure. There is no questioning. You are <laughs> unstoppable. <laughs>
Dang, how do you summarize that conversation? Some great nuggets to take away. I think the big one, obviously, uh, be a mentor. If somebody's coming to learn under you, apprentice under you, make sure they're leaving with some knowledge. And then finding partners that excel in areas of the business that you don't was another great nugget I took from this conversation. Uh, When taking over a restaurant, make sure you change the brand uh when the chef leaves the guests leave and you want to you want to create a brand that uh best represents you uh and when you start from scratch it's new it's fresh it's a better start uh and then chef also made a really good point on distilling a clear message to your customers that explains who you are and what your restaurant's all about you don't want to make people really have to think about who you are once you know who you are stay true to who you are and also taking advantage of the media. Uh, And when you get to the point where you can get out of your restaurant, don't slow down, keep going hard, but redirect your focus in other places uh, like the media to, to draw attention to your business. And then lastly, there was some really cool advice on uh, how to raise some capital and maybe doing it the same exact way that chef road road did with the, the coupons and uh, you know, $1,000 a month of, I can't remember exactly the rate he had, but the point being, you know, he raised $450,000 by getting creative, be creative, brainstorm, don't quit. Think of ways to make it happen. And uh, this is just one great example of how you can make things happen. If you really put your mind to it. And then also for something that kind of resonates really close to me, uh, it took five years of struggle of showing up, of constant improvement, of learning, of growing, of surrounding yourself with incredible people with the same passion, the same interest, the same, the same like twinkle in their eye that Chef had to get to the point where he was really starting to, to do something special with his business. It, it takes time is the point that I'm trying to make. Five years. So if you're listening to this and you're struggling and you're you're wondering if there's if there's any hope just keep showing up compare yourself to the person you were yesterday as long as you're just a little bit better than you were yesterday and you keep showing up being a little bit better and you stay positive and you surround yourself with the right people it can happen for you and this is really kind of hitting home close to me cuz i'll be i'll be honest uh, to get real with you guys three episodes a week, two to three episodes a week for the past five years. Uh, I feel like I've gotten better as a host. I feel like the show has grown, but to be frank, I I, I was hoping I'd be further along. And, you know, uh, the fact that, you know, I'm traveling all over the nation and I'm um, doing, you know, anywhere from six to 10 interviews a week, sometimes sleeping in the parking lot of a, a Walmart multiple times. And I, don't get me wrong. I'm so, so grateful for the support that I've had for people that have uh, give, opened their homes to me R- right now. I'm in Portland, Oregon, uh, and I have a whole RV to myself, a whole driver RV that somebody let me, is letting me stay in. Uh, I've gotten a ton of support and I'm grateful for that support, but I do have my dark times and I'm, I, you know, I, I, <laughs> the only thing I think keep, keeping me going is knowing that this podcast is helping thousands of people stay inspired and uh, and get empowered and you know the point is just just keep showing up and this this episode i needed to hear this today i'll tell you that much uh you know things aren't bad here at restaurant unstoppable but it is a lot of work and i i do three episodes a week for a reason because that's just as much as i can handle without burning out and i think you know, I'm a true believer that you got to push the envelope. You got to be right at that point. If you, if you bear, if you, if you have control, you're not going fast enough, and that's where you grow in that area of discomfort. So, um, you know, I just really needed to hear this. So again, thank you so much, Chef 
Terry Rodro. Uh, sorry to get real with you guys, but you know, uh, it helped me and I hoped I hope it helps you guys too. So like always, guys, please do reach out to me, Eric at restaurantunstoppable.com. Uh, and, you know, help me spread the word about this podcast. That would really help me out. If you find value in these episodes, please share it and tag me at Eric Cacciatore, E-R-I-C-C-A-C-C-I-A-T-O-R-E. So I can thank you for sharing it. And and that's how we're going to grow this community of people sharing knowledge. And like Chef Rotoro pointed out, it's our job to uh, take matters into our own hands, to not wait for somebody else to, to change things. We need to change things. If we're going to move this industry forward, if we're going to make this world a better place, we need to share knowledge. We need to bring people together and it's, it's up to us and your part. If you want to help this mission of inspiring, empowering and transforming the industry is by sharing this content. Anyone, you know, aspiring to be great, struggling in this industry, put this sucker on their radar. It will help them out. It's helped me out and I hope it's helped you out. All right, guys, that's all for today. Thank you so much for sticking around this long. I love you all until next time. Peace out.